Hello, everyone. My name is Suki Thompson. Welcome to Reset, the podcast, a place for you to get some inspiration and advice to help you live a more fulfilling work life. I do hope that your journey to feel more connected, more inspired, just a bit more energized starts here. Take a moment now with me to reset. I have known Sarah Tate for a long time as an accomplished agency leader. She's an advertising mastermind and now qualified coach and organizational strategist. Sarah has a fascination with business culture and what makes people tick, how we're different and what we can do to help bring people together. We cover so much in this podcast, but I think there are three main themes to our conversation. The first one is asking for help. We discuss just how hard it is to reach out and ask for help, particularly when we feel like we're drowning. Sarah reflects on how a loss in her past has made her take a step back and lean more on those people around her and how that has taught her not to be afraid to ask for help anymore. Together we discuss the ways we've learned how to ask for help and the amazing people that we've learned from. Next is about taking a break. It just sounds so simple, doesn't it? But we discuss the importance of taking recovery time for your daily rituals. Just like athletes take recovery periods from their sport, we too need to take a break from work. Sarah shares again some tips on how to raise your own self-awareness and when you need to take some time out and how to find a way to recover. Finally, we talk about the importance of relationships. As you know, one of my favorite subjects, we talk about how to create stronger relationships, particularly at work. A good team is always in progress, says Sarah, and she shares how to make them focused and more high performing. Talking with Sarah this week is like a breath of fresh air and a reminder to take a moment to pause, reset and re-energize. It made me reflect again that you just can't control other people, but you can control yourself. What we can all do is take accountability for ourselves and change our own behavior for the better. And in doing so, we're able to influence each other. I do hope you enjoy this week's edition of Reset the Podcast. If you did, please like it and share it with your colleagues and friends. It makes a real difference to us all. Hello, Sarah. So lovely to see you. It's been a while. It has been, and it's lovely to see you again. So on a scale of one to 10, how energized do you feel today, Sarah? Oh, I work-wise, I feel really energized. But as ever, and I'll, we'll talk about this, we're not just work. So my, my son just broke his arm and that's been quite a draining experience. So it sort of proved to me that we're just one pot. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, a bit of, bit of both. I'd say a seven. Seven. Okay. Well, seven's still pretty good considering it's, um, it's so traumatic, isn't it? When you think you've got everything organized, it's all going nicely. And then something like your son, you know, breaking quite badly, a, a, a limb actually just throws everything out, doesn't it? It does. And in some ways, it's a reminder that that happens all the time, that, that everything, you know, everything's connected and everything affects everything else. So if, if anything, it's reminded me of what I should have already known. Well, yeah, absolutely. Well, I was really keen to speak to you because, you know, Reset, my business is all about the kind of micro and macro big resets that we can do in business and in life uh, to make things better, incrementally better. And, you know, you've been uh, somebody at the heart of transformation for a long time, particularly with your work um, as the head of the agency TBWA. And then, you know, you wrote a book, um, the rebuilders and you know which I'm really keen to talk about because I I loved it and I love the fact that you talk about you know, everything's not just new it's not like starting from the beginning but it is about the fact that we are there and we have to constantly re- rebuild bits of us mm. and it might be a work element or it might be a something impacting our lives um 
tell us a little bit about what made you write the book in the first place. I think I've always, I have always had a deep interest in people because I started my career as a strategist. Um, pre-performance marketing, when it was really, I spent my time trying to, trying to understand what makes people tick? Why don't they do what we might want? Why do they do something else? You know, and understanding kind of cohorts and consumers. So, um, and then when I moved into general management, I was really fascinated by the group of people within the business that I was running. And when I went into TBWA, that was a turnaround. It's all very well having ideas about what you want to do as a CEO, but the biggest job we all know is actually what does that group of 200 odd people want to do? How are they feeling? How can you energize them and sort of point them towards a more purposeful future that they feel really positive about? And I became more and more interested in the culture of the business. And at the same time as having done that sort of work turnaround, I did it with my work wife, like uh, Anna Voigt, who is the CSO. Um, we, Anna and I had also been through various bits of shit hitting the fan in our personal lives primarily for me child loss baby loss before um before I started the job you know and just stuff happens doesn't it um and then and at the end of 2019 we were feeling very good actually about oh hadn't we done a lovely job rebuilding this agency and then the pandemic came and suddenly we realized it's a cycle you're not always going up it is a cycle and although the business was still doing brilliantly everyone was reappraising everything because we were all in a sort of global state of re-evaluating and rebuilding. Um, And we noticed that the types of skills that we were drawing on for these really unprecedented circumstances were not necessarily things we'd learned work-wise in the last couple of years. They were just skills that we had learned in life. So dealing with uncertainty, trying to make sure we took breaks, trying to show up when you're feeling really, you know, pretty drained yourself and not great. Um, And we spent more and more time together talking about this. And we sort of formed this idea that actually we wanted to explore stories of people who'd rebuilt things. And so we started a podcast. Anna also reminded me, we partly started it because we had four kids under six between us and both of our partners worked. And it gave us a time to hide in our rooms and talk to each other on Zoom, basically. Oh, we're recording our podcast. And so we started to talk to people not not business people, people who'd um, been to prison, people who'd overcome alcoholism. And we, having done, when we did 10 interviews, we started to see themes. And we thought, you know what, this, this is really interesting. Let's talk to lots more people. And this love of this topic um, evolved. Yeah. And I, and I like that, that sort of the themes, because I think that's very much in a different way of what I found with the Let's Reset book that I created, those stories of people coming together. Um, but, but can we just go back to you personally before we go on to then talk about the themes from the book, if that's OK? Because, yeah. you know, look, a, a significant loss for you. How, how did you cope with that? What, how did you just carry on? Um, it was really interesting. I mean, at the time, you don't know how you do it. <clears throat> but looking back, I deployed a lot of things which I now can see in themes in the book. So first of all, I, I never like asking for help, but I lent very heavily on those close to me, um, which we see that all the, re- the best rebuilders do. I was able to eventually stop looking forward to a sort of imagined future I thought we were going to have. And I just was able to move forward one step at a time, which again, is you know, you have to accept losses come in all forms and you have to accept something you'd envisioned isn't going to be the case. You've got to let, you've got to let go of that. Um, and I also, I learned that I needed to take time and you do get lost for a little bit in the middle, but actually I, I did come out the other side and that fact I came out the other side has since given me huge kind of sucker in a way. And that's one of the biggest lessons we find from rebuilders, which is we don't say, oh, every cloud has the silver lining. Cause you know, if you're dealing with someone who's been to prison or someone who's had a terminal cancer diagnosis, I mean, it doesn't, you know, that there's, you can't say that, but um, you do learn how much or how you can navigate these circumstances. And then when inevitably something else comes up, you can say to yourself, do you know what? I've done this before. We've done this before and I can do it again. And that is the silver lining in a way that, that you can take from all rebuilds, which is, and, and interestingly, when we talk to people in midlife, often 
the more someone had gone through or the older they are, the more they can see the cycles. And as they go in, they go, it's going to be, I'm going to be lost for a bit, but you know what? I'm going to emerge. Yes. Yes. That's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think you're right. Those cycles are right. And I think if, you know, if I look at other people and from your book and personal experience, the reaching out to ask for help um, as, as the first point you talked about, it's hard though, isn't it? And I wonder if it's, is it, is it harder for women than men or is it just genuine, generally hard anyway for, for whoever we are? Um, I think it's generally hard. <clears throat> I think particularly um, people who have achieved a lot, um, you know, there's lots of very reflexive, naturally human things that go through one's mind. And we have, a, we've got a lot of really good tools in the book and we get people to dissect why they might not be asking. And one of the things is that you feel, particularly the older you get in life or the more senior you get in work, that you should have all the answers. And I think that's as true, if not more true for men than women. Yeah. Um, also, there is another aspect, which is you don't want to put upon other people. Um, and that might be dialed up a bit a bit more for women. I think it just depends on on disposition. Um, and there's a sense that often with some of the setbacks, there might be an element of shame of sharing that I'm actually I, I need some support. So there's lots of different layers to it. And I think some it just depends on your personality. But breaking down why you're not asking can be the first step to sort of going, actually, I voiced that fear and you know what, it's fine. It was fine. And and I guess because I think the other side of that is it's the asking, but it's also how you react to the asking, isn't it? Um, you know, I, if I reflect back on a time for me where I really just thought I couldn't cope um, and, and I went to a head of HR and she was so nice, like so open and of going, do you know what? No one could cope with perhaps what you're doing. And Suki, it's fine. Take some time. You don't have to come to work. You can. We're here. We're here to support you in any way you like. And by the way, don't just give up. Just be there. If one day you want to do something, that's fine. And if another day yeah. you don't, it's okay too. And I think for me, one, asking for help was really hard. But her mm. response to me was so helpful that I now, that's really changed my perspective on perhaps how I react to other people who are asking for help. Um, and I wonder that's, whether that's really interesting. Do, 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 do you see that? Yes. Well? And, and I think that's why we see that people who've rebuilt and go through cycles actually become better at go at deploying the tools because they go, oh, actually, I remember last time I asked for help. And do you know what? Everyone was amazing. I'm yeah. going to try and do it a bit sooner this time. Or I mean, you talked about there about stepping out of the track that you were on you know taking time and that's the other one and we talk about a lot in the book people don't want to step out um for whatever reason day week month and but actually if you've done it you're able to go oh you know what I did that last time and it was fine I mean we talked to this woman called um she's a BBC sports journalist called Charlie Webster and she was really really I mean she still is you know very um uh, ambitious, brilliant sort of woman. I mean, to be a female sports journalist is incredible. Yeah. And she never really stepped off the track. And then she was away um, broadcasting and she fell very ill and she actually had a brain, brain hemorrhage, she had a brain injury, and she was forced to step out. And what was really interesting was when she did step out, um, a lot of other stuff came to the surface and she finally, and, and she's very open about it, confronted the fact that she had suffered abuse as a child and she'd never dealt with it. And so taking the time actually allowed other stuff to come up and she didn't step back in until she dealt with that bigger thing. Yeah. Um, and so often people build the confidence, you know, maybe you're sick and I remember I had two weeks off chicken pox once. So by the time I'm like, I'm stepping out for a year to deal with this big loss, you're like, this is fine. You know, you kind of get used in baby steps to deploying the things that work for you and you build confidence around them. Yeah. And do you find, because it's interesting, I was speaking to a client this morning who I'm on a, such a micro level in comparison yeah. as to things you just talked about, had COVID. Yeah. But she carried on working through COVID. So she worked at home, 
even though she felt ill. And she said, oh, I've done that typical thing, which is I've carried on. Two weeks later, I still don't feel great. Yeah. And she said, I know what you're going to say, Suki. You're going to say, just take a couple of days off completely because you will recover. Mm. And I wonder whether when you've taken like you did such a big amount of time because it was mm. so important, do you now... And, and do you see from the other people you spoke to, do they find it easier on the kind of more sort of smaller things like a COVID scenario where they go, no, I'm going to have boundaries. I'm going to take this time. Yeah. I have boundaries around my life work that work much more effectively. Yes, they definitely find it easier, but no one, it's a life's work. I mean, as you all know, right? Yeah. You know, you these things creep back in and you get back into a job and you think, oh, I can't, you know, in the, in the thick of it, and you think, I can't possibly step out for a day. But people do get better at it. And like anything, and boundaries is a classic one, exercising your boundaries the more you exercise them the more you get confidence in exercising them and eventually becomes a muscle memory and you just you just need to remember to do it and and then you do it you don't you stop worrying about about what people will think so yes I think with all these things the more that you practice them the easier it becomes and I I completely get that but the other part I I'm interested in if you found out is you know, boundaries are a really interesting thing to talk about. Mm. We talk a lot, you know, you, t- you talk about it in your book, this sort of what we classically call a work-life balance. Yeah. So for someone like me, that genuinely, I love my work. I do quite have a lot of varied things. I love my life on the whole. Um, I don't have very clear boundaries. Yeah. I am much better at looking after my own well-being. In fact, I, you know, I'm, of mm. course, I focus on it hugely. Mm. But I... I don't mind blending and molding those together. Whereas Helen, for example, my business partner is amazing at it in a different way. So she's very clearly on or off working. Yeah. And and I wonder whether you found, is there a right or wrong or is it about yeah. doing right for you as a human being? I don't think there's a right or wrong. I'm much more like you. My husband had a word at me yesterday. He said, I thought when, you know, I thought when you moved into this new career, you were going to be working less. And I'm like, I mean, I am. He's like, but you're working all these days. And I'm like, oh, yeah, but in between, I have a nice walk. (laughs) So for me, I'm like, you know, my patterns are, I blend it all together. But in between, I have these wonderful light kind of moments of things I'm loving doing. So I I think it's, I'm much more like you. I don't think there is a right or a wrong. Um, I think what we see is that people, they don't, it's not about finding balance, um, is that people acknowledge that things, they're better at acknowledging when things change, the people who succeed. So for example, we talk a lot about the need for recovery and different people's recovery states. I mean, I wrote it with Anna, who's a former international swimmer. So recovery is a massive thing in sport, but recovery will look different for a cyclist or a swimmer or a sprinter. So, but you do need to build in recovery and also understand what recovery looks like for you. So for example, I build, I love to read and reading is a really um, uh, calm time for me. I interviewed someone recently who is um, uh, an amazing woman called Jamie Klingler, who took them at police to court, who's an activist who rebuilt her life um, after she gave up. Uh, food and alcohol dependencies and she um, is a women's safety activist and she was told off recently and she talks about it on the podcast for stress reading right so reading for me works really well for her her therapist was like check your blood pressure when you're reading because she's like reading really really intense things <laughs> it's just another way of kind of getting the adrenaline pumping so it, yeah. there's no right thing for everyone we do talk about finding anchors I mean boundaries are one thing but I think anchors are also really important and anchors are the things that keep you grounded and they mean different things for different people so I think you need them daily weekly yearly and and some they're the things which when everything's in the washing machine they allow you to feel like you have some sanity so it might be weekly daily rituals a coffee a walk or whatever it might be your business partner it might be turning off at half five but it's also things like key relationships that you need to sustain um friends mothers whatever it might be and then at a bigger macro level it's your values you know, you might have a religious practice or a spiritual practice, or you might just have ethics and values which are dear to you. And if all of those things are changed at one time, 
it's really challenging. It's very hard to keep one's head above water. Um, and so just we talk about auditing your anchors and just kind of checking that you've still got some in place. And we saw the what I call the great work from home experiment. Um, but obviously work from home is a wonderful thing for many people. But how it was done at the start of the pandemic was very all or nothing and it wasn't very nuanced. And what people found is that almost all of their anchors were gone. So from a macro perspective, the whole world was upside down. Also, they couldn't see friends, they couldn't see family, they couldn't talk to people at work. And on a daily level, they had no commute time, they had no time alone, or or they were all alone all the time. So every level, all the anchors are ripped up. And for many people, as we've seen, and we've seen with the NHS, it's just too much. And then people start to build some stuff back in. So people did little things like, I'm going for a walk at lunchtime, or I'm going to have a fake commute before work. I'm going to make sure I phone my friend once yeah. a week. Maybe eventually this company, the direction of this company no longer meets the values that I've, my evolved values. So they move jobs. So I, rather than balance and boundaries, I think thinking about the things which need to remain consistent in your life and then the things which can flex around that is really helpful. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's absolutely exactly the same things that we see all the time in, in the thousands of people that we've, we've mm. looked at and also measured through our seven needs. And I think it's, it's interesting you talk about these kind of anchors because you know, one of the things I'm fascinated by because it happens to me all the time. And it's like a I don't know every time so you know there'll be a day where I go oh I just feel rubbish today and I don't even really know why and then Mm. I look at what it is Mm. and it'll be usually I'm tired usually I've either done something big and so I'm coming back from that moment yeah Um, and around your anchor thing so you know I might be seeing lots of people but they're not my close friends yeah or they're only my close friends and it's not been the broader thing and I have to kind of come back and there's a moment of either going yep I need to re-put those anchors back in place or I just need to not think about it today, have a good night's sleep and wake mm. up tomorrow and feel a bit better. And, you know, I, I kind of got the impression from your work and your book that, that that's another sort of theme of people that they that you recognise that it's that recovery in a way is not linear, nor is work yeah. or life. And there's yes. always something happening. And so yeah. you feel like like one day, oh, I'm really on this now. And then the next day you don't. And then it feels like almost what well, I feel like I'm sort of failing because I can't keep it consistently going. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. And, and I think people, the first stage, you know, we often work in quite stru- structured routines, particularly if you have a classic full-time job where you start at this time and you end at this time. And that doesn't, always you know five days a week and if your son breaks their arm or you've done a big gig and you're feeling tired it doesn't always work so I think the first step is just being like really strong self-awareness around that stuff um so that you can adjust as much as possible so maybe there's some workload you can put on for tomorrow and you can push it off today's list or you can go to bed a bit early or you can phone someone whatever it might be and in general what we found is the people who Everyone is dealing with huge amounts of volatility and uncertainty all the time. It doesn't, it's it's almost impossible to erase from your life, either daily uncertainty or kind of bigger failures. And the people who work, the people who manage best through it and not those that manage to erase the stress and the volatility are those who are able to observe it and kind of work around it. Um, so they notice the pattern, become quite self-aware about the patterns in themselves. They become quite self-aware about how they're feeling, when they need to recover, when they might need to tap into different aspects of resourcefulness or ask for help, whatever it might be. And so I think, and, and also, you know, when they get the masterful level, that it's actually about letting go of not trying to control the universe, which is also exhausting. So not trying to control everything, but accepting that there's a lot of stuff changing and somehow finding a way like a tree in the wind of staying rooted, but also bending a little bit. Um, And those are the people who sort of seem to develop the most resilience because they're just more aware of of what's happening. Yes, and and I get that point about the combination of observing letting go Mm. and 
and and being flexible you know bending them and I like I like that as an expression I think you know for me again it comes like a therapy session for me it's rather nice really um but I see this a lot that in in work so you know there are lots of things there are lots of moments where you know you're either very worked up about something or something feels very important and other people don't get it and it can eat away yeah can really eat away yeah. it all the time in our workshops and there's um you know there's just something there that that they can't get over um so i'm i'm fascinated here a bit yeah. more about how people actually are able to do that because it sounds yeah. so easy doesn't it it's um, the work of a lifetime yeah. <laughs> um but that's fine there's a wonderful guy called michael shaskelin who's a monk who also works um with businesses mm-hmm. he talks about using emotion as data for yourself which again is challenging because if you feel mm-hmm. very upset by something very stressed by something or you talk there about you really want people to get something that you get or worry about something that you're worried about you know it's common in businesses yeah. and they don't he talks about awareness um inquiry it's aim awareness so being aware of it. inquiry so just asking, you know, creating a little bit of space between you and and how you're feeling and just observing and kind of asking, oh, okay, I'm feeling really, my classic would be, I, I, I would start to get really stressed about something in the office and I'd be like, hey, what's going on here? And then zoom out a sort of macro view. He says, zoom out a little bit and have a look at it. And so it's about trying to create some space between you and the emotion but also try and understand what it's telling you. And, and if you, we often have emotional patterns and eventually you can spot them and even give them a name. So my classic would be if I was, when I was CEO, I begin to be quite worried about something. I'd find it really sitting on me and I'd be, Oh, I'm doing that thing again. Um, and then I would sit back and look at it. And it was always 99% of the time related to a problem that I didn't have a solution for. And I didn't know how I was going to solve it. And my solution, I always know is sitting down with a couple of other people and getting it on the table. So I just notice, I'd be like, oh, I'm doing that thing again, where I get in my zone and, and I'm like, I need to get this out on the table. And so just observing, using that emotion, even the negative emotion as some, uh, trying to see what it's telling you. And then you, it kind of gets quite fun. You can pattern spot with your own things. Yeah, that's so interesting. One of the things I used to do with my partner would be, she used to drive him mad, I think, which was, you know, at two o'clock in the morning, I would do the same thing. I'd be like, there's so many things in my head. Mm. And I'd just wake him up and he'd go, oh, okay. What are Get they? it out. Yeah, get it, out. Get it out. Just go through them. And then we go through them and then I'd be, oh, okay, that's really great. Thank you. And I'd go back to sleep and he'd be there going. Yeah. Oh, I think right. the key for you is to try and observe that at 8 p.m. So, exactly. <laughs> and he did say, could you just not do that at two o'clock in the morning? It's really not very helpful. Exactly. But I would know because very rare. I didn't do it very often, but it, I then would know. And actually one of our, I try and do this on my own now rather than do it, waking anyone else up, but um one of our sleep therapists was so helpful because it, it always happens to me in the middle of the night. Right. And and I used to really worry because I'd be going, no, I need to be asleep. I need to not do this now. I need to be asleep. And she said, do you know what? Don't just get up. Don't stay in bed and do it. Get up, get out. Yeah. Go and write the da- stuff down. Do not try to solve it because it's a work problem, but just write the stuff down. Yeah. Get it out of your head. Either put into a bracket of I can solve this in the morning or do you know what? I can't solve this, but it's a worry. Yeah. And go back to bed. Yeah. And actually, I find that that is so much more helpful than... Exactly. It's just a tool that you've developed, right? And other people might say, absolutely not. You need a nine hour sleep or eight hour sleep. But for you, you know, it works. Yeah. 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 But I love your, I love your point about you just need to sit down with a couple of people because you are so right. And... That, and that that's for me what what yeah. works my my husband is the opposite if he um starts to find he's fraying he's more of a natural introvert and it will be because he hasn't spent enough time on his own yes um and again it's just sort of observing that so it's different for everyone but for me definitely if I get it out on the table and if I start to if I start to withhold it that's a sign that I'm I'm not 
Uh, I'm over worrying. And, that, and that's interesting in a business, isn't it? Because I wonder about this because for me, having had oyster catchers with Peter Cowie and now let's yeah. with Helen, yeah. they are polar opposite. So Peter, as you know, very outgoing, mm. very extrovert, very talkative. So he would talk through his problems all the time. Mm. Um, and not necessarily his own emotional problems, actually. I think he grew emotionally but from mm. a business perspective. Um, and I probably did the opposite. So I'm more emotionally attuned, but from a business perspective would be a more of a, I'll fix it myself. So we grew yeah. up that. Yeah. Helen and I, Helen is, is to, to like your husband. She needs time on her own, working it out, writing yeah. stuff. You know, she's that kind of classic brand marketeer, planner, yeah. brilliant person. And then she'll come and go, right, this is the thing. And it's taken me quite a long time to recognize that she just works differently from, obviously works differently from me, but differently yeah. from the business partnership that I've been used to. Yeah, I taught someone about this yesterday. I mean, uh, and this is a lot of what I do when I do coaching and team coaching. Mm. I mean, a good team is always in process. It's like a relationship, but actually a team's more complex because there's yes. more of you often. Yes. Um, and like any good relationship, you sometimes you're just really lucky, right? You're just with someone or you have a partner at work and it just works, but it doesn't always um, work without having a conversation around it. And if it's not working, it doesn't mean it's completely broken. It is about being in process, i.e. talking about how do you work well? How do I work well? How do we, how do we want to come together? And if there's eight or nine people on a board, it's hugely complex, but also constantly revisiting it. Yeah. Making time to discuss how the team functions, not just what the team is there to deliver as a team. And with C-suites, often they don't do that because they assume that the work of the team is the work of the business. Oh, well, we know why we're here and we know what we're here to do. And it's like, no, that's what you're there to do on behalf of the business. But why are you here together? What's the purpose of this team? How will you operate together? And how often do you come back and have a conversation about it? And that's a little bit what you're describing with Helen is that you've, yeah. you've come to that in time. But more and more in business, there's not time. There isn't time. And actually, Amy Evanson has started to, um, Professor Amy Evanson, who's written a lot around psychological safety and the need to build how you build a basis of trust within a team that everything, it needs to be there before everything else is built. Mm -hmm. She has got a great talk about teaming, which is a more active thing she talks about where um, many different people from disciplines are brought together and they need to build that team dynamic very quickly. So in emergency situations, she talks about um, bringing the Chilean miners up, but also, you know, more and more in the complex challenges that we're facing. I mean, at the start of the pandemic, suddenly all these people are brought in and suddenly that team needs to function now. So she talks about ways to accelerate that building of under that building that basis of trust and understanding about how will we work best together. Yeah. And I don't, it, it's once you get into the habit of it, it's such a powerful unlock. But I was talking about sort of making the implicit explicit. So yeah. don't make assumptions about how you're finding me and how I'm finding you. Just just get it out and have a have a conversation about it, and it speeds it up. Yeah, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Well, you know, I was thinking this week. Isn't it interesting that we we do that in a maybe a partnership in a in a board, particularly mm. in a you know in a company. I've never done it in a non-exec board. Really? I wonder yeah. why that is. Why do you think that is? Uh, well, I was reflecting on it. I wonder whether it's partly because you don't meet very often. Mm. You only meet once, once a month. But, um, and, and you have very clear roles and responsibilities as a board because mm. you'll either be, you know, you'll probably be on the committees, but you might run REM or you'll run audit or you've got a, a clear mm. role and you've got execs and non-execs. I wonder then also because it's so task focused mm. and actually, you know, to your point then about crisis, boards work, you know, they, they actually kind of tick along until there's a crisis. Until they don't. Until That's they the key, don't. until and they don't. then in a crisis, it becomes, you know, all on. And it might not even be a bad crisis. It might just be a moment where you're doing a lot very quickly because something's very timely it's got to happen it might yeah. be a position it might be a you know something else and then actually the people bit becomes increasingly important and then how yeah. you behave yeah uh, but it's never happened um I, I, other people listening will go oh you know actually we've done this with our board and it works really well 
Yeah, I all I I'm a big believer in that. And I going back to TBWA, I mean, I think we fared very well as a business, and and the people within the business were amazing. And I think in part because we had already had a huge disruptive transformation yeah. two years before. So we were transforming the business from 2017 to 2019. And then when it when 2020 happened, actually we had a group of really resilient people who knew each other well and had kind of been in the trenches and they felt confident about their ability to roll with change because they were like, we've done this. We've, um, yes. Whereas I, I observed businesses that had just ticked along brilliantly or had been ticking along averagely and had never taken the hard decisions where the teams maybe hadn't gone through a degree of getting used to each other in more difficult times and drawing on their professional resourcefulness. Um, yeah. So getting, managing small changes small losses small rebuilds will help deal with the bigger things when they come and laying those foundations will pay huge dividends when you know bigger disruptions come down the line yes yes and i guess you know boards have the advantage of some hugely hugely experienced people who have done a lot of the things before yeah so that's the absolute joy i mean pretty much that you're always on a board where there's somebody who's done, done it before. So everyone's got a few battle scars. Everyone's got some, yeah, some amazing battle yeah. scars to your point. But but I, I find that interesting. Yeah, we just don't yeah. do the so much the people side of things. Mm. Yeah, no, it's um, always worth doing. Yeah, it is. Yeah, completely, completely. Well, you know, they know I always bang on about the things that I talk about all the time and you can see the slight eye rolling of, of <gasps> well, she's at it again. But um, uh yeah, hopefully, hopefully it makes a bit of a difference. What else? What else have mm. you found from your book that's really makes a big difference? One of the things was, and I, I touched on it a bit before, was this <clears throat> the ability to exist in uncertainty. Um, you know, and we, I sort of learned, you know, years ago the kind of oh businesses are in a VUCA climate, you know, that term volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, which I think was developed at the end to describe the military situation in the Cold War. Yes. Yeah. But now pretty much just describes everything all the time. And and the first interview I ever did for the podcast has been one of the ones I go back to again and again because the learnings are so good. It's a guy called Jason Gonzalez who used to be in the industry and he went to rebuild the Face magazine. So he um, uh, restarted, relaunched this incredibly iconic magazine. And I talked to him right at the start of the pandemic when like everyone's trousers were on fire. I mean, literally we're all kind of, you know, homeschooling and panicking and, and he was kind of fine. I mean, given that he was running a magazine, you know, business, which is yes. difficult at the best of times, which is reliant on cultural happenings. Mm. He, his kids were at home, you know, being homeschooled, his wife worked. And what was interesting was he talked about, um, very early on, he talked about his divorce. He got divorced when he was quite young and his when he, in his 20s and how he was really burned the world down afterwards until he eventually came around to accepting his role in it. And he said that actually since then, he'd really learned to um, take, he talked about like resting control back from the universe, like I taking full accountability and really leaning into his choices and the role that he had in things. Mm-hmm. Um, and the result of that was he felt hugely empowered and hugely in control of most things. So, so conversely, feeling, taking huge accountability allowed him to deal with uncertainty. And that was something that came up again and again and again. So the more, rather than sort of yeah. things rolling over you and feeling overwhelmed and even maybe taking a victim stance on stuff, oh God, this is happening to me, this shitstorm or this diagnosis or whatever, actually sort of starting to step into I have I have total control over my response to the situation and and really leaning into that um and that it was the key I think to managing continual uncertainty rather than trying to suppress the uncertainty which no one can do but actually just going I have full control over my choices and realizing that how you respond the decisions you make are all within your gift and it was, you know, I sort of try and channel him a bit when I'm kind of feeling a bit. Yes. Um, and we saw that come up again and again. Yes. It's so interesting, isn't it? I um, there's a lovely man called David Wood, who's the chief executive of Wix. 
And when I'd sold oyster catchers to Centaur, mm. there was a time, like there is, I think, for every entrepreneur, actually, that sells their business, where, I don't know, we're 18 months in, we've done our own out, and it's all then going rather pear-shaped. And I remember sitting down with him going, this is just terrible. Look what's happened. It's all awful. Obviously, yeah. obviously it can't be my fault. You know, everyone else's fault. And, yeah. and he sat down and we were talking about this the other day and he sat down and he went, okay, well, you have two, you have literally two options here. So you've got loads of options, but you've got two. Walk away. It's fine. Nobody would expect you. You're an entrepreneur. You've worked mm. on your own for ages. Nobody would expect you to stay. It's fine. Go. Mm. Or stop feeling sorry for yourself. Mm. Stop crying and literally lean in and get on with it. What can you do? Do a plan. Right, let's sit down and we, do it. we wrote a plan, yeah. you know, and he was amazing. And he said, right, you can't fix this problem. How are you going to resolve it? Yeah. And he was so helpful. Mm. Um, and actually, for me, that was an amazing business lesson. It's led to, you know, I'm still involved now with Exium Centaur five yeah. years later, and I love it. And yeah. actually, I put it down to almost that moment where yeah. I had a choice, I took control, um, and I recognized that I would carry on feeling insecure. You know, security in the workplace is one of the mm -hmm. first, of our seven needs is the first one we look at. Mm -hmm. And I have, I always thought, you know what, I'm really good. I'm amazing at dealing with insecurity because I do it all the time. I've been an entrepreneur forever and yeah. deal with transformation. But actually, when you feel fundamentally insecure, you don't know if you're yeah. good, don't understand what's going on, it feels yeah. like everything's changed. That's our kind of natural reaction. Yeah. And we it's interesting because we interviewed Clive Woodward, the yeah. rugby coach. And, you know, he's obviously had a lot of successes, but he also, after he won the World Cup, did the Lions Tour, which was an unmitigated disaster. Um, but also, you know, in sport, winning or losing when something's gone well or badly is pretty evident in the score. And he had this great um, tool that he talks about, and this is totally his, it's not mine, that he talks to his players about after wins and losses, right? He says, after a win, um, everything should be window. Look through the window and it's everyone else's, um, you know, uh, re is due to everyone else this has happened thank my mom thank the coach thank the players yeah. yes. every everyone else when it's when you've lost the only person to look to is the one in the mirror not because other people might not have had a part to play but you can't do anything about that what you can do is yeah. what could I do differently and better what 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 are the choices that I can make or that I made that I could do differently. And, and everyone else on the team will also do that rather than this kind of finger pointing. Because the finger pointing also is a sense of lack of control. You should have and you should have. But yes. actually just going, yeah, okay, I'm in control of me and what could I do differently or better? And it's it, you feel like it's going to give you more stress, but actually it doesn't. It gives you a huge sense of calm. And like you said, you sit down and you go, okay, what can't I control? And what can I control? Trying to control other people's reactions to things is an absolute hiding to nothing. <laughs> we yes. all realize as we get older, you literally can't. All you can do is look to, is look to yourself. Um, and actually it really <coughs> down the things that you could and should be worrying about, which is great. And I, uh, I so agree. I so agree. And then the other one I wondered about was, um, I was talking to one of our psychologists and mm. actually it was after um, a relationship of mine split up and we talked about, you know, you said earlier, when you've got something really going on in your head, you need a couple of people around you to talk about it. Mm. Often what I found, and I recognised from this, but I hadn't recognised it before with myself, was, um, you know, I love talking to other people about things. Mm. But if there's a really big problem that I feel is their responsibility, mm. what I tend to do is to go, fine, I'll literally ignore that thing. I'll let you get on with that because you don't want to do anything about it. It's very tricky. It's kind of personally yours, either in business or at home. This happened to be in a personal relationship. So I just let it go. And mm. what I recognized from that was actually if I'd lent in 
and said, this is a fundamental challenge here. You don't really have a solution. I don't have a solution. We need to find a way through this together. Did you explore why you step back from it? Yeah, because it was to do with family. Right. And is it because in those situations, it, there's you, it's too, you're fearful of making it worse? Or did you well, understand what no, the pattern is? Uh, you know, I think uh, I looked at it endlessly. I think partly mm. I was fearful of the outcome. Mm. I think partly I was like, do you know what? It's just not my responsibility. This is what I would do with my family. You need to choose what you want to do with your family. Yeah. And just because I believe one thing's right, I know not everyone should feel the same. Mm. Um, and and also because I cared, because mm. I cared about them. And I love them and I didn't want them to have to go through that anxiety of doing something that I thought was right, even, mm. even if it wasn't comfortable for them. And I think in the workplace, I, I now recognize I've done that before myself in work as well, yeah. where somebody seems to have a very big, strong held belief that is different from mine. And rather than go, okay, I will find a way for us to reach a compromise because we still might not have agreed. Yeah. Yeah. But we would have, yeah. we might have tackled it together. And I wonder whether communication this- is one of the things we cover. And it seems like yeah. such a basic chapter. Yes. <clears throat> but when things are particularly when things are smelly, you you know in, yes. in the UK we're taught oh let sleeping dogs lie yes. you know children should be seen and not heard if you haven't got anything nice to say don't say anything at all I mean yes. not saying something is like a national pastime yes. and the worse it is <clears throat> the more tempted we are the more scared we often are to go near it and in you know and most therapists and counsellors would 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 um, say this is that actually the need to communicate and, and understand um, uh, what's happened is the first step to move forwards. It's not about going back over fault and that kind of thing, but being fearful of putting something on the table often just leads to further issues. Um, and particularly in the, in the workplace, like we're not necessarily great at doing it, even with small things and they build up into bigger things. And so, um, I mean, I love the the book Radical Candor and she talks brilliantly in there about, about <clears throat> how to approach it. And, I worked with a team last week and just to give them some simple tools in order to be able to raise issues in a non-confrontational way. So trying to be candid, but doing so with care and respect and, and sort of balancing those two things. So real candor and honesty, but always with care and respect, not being one of those people who goes, well, I like to speak my mind and then just being really rude. So balancing those two things, it's, it is tricky um, but it's really necessary. And that's what I hear a little bit in that situation you're talking about is, you know, it does often take a lot of bravery and a lot of rehearsing and maybe creating the right space for a moderated conversation to bring to bring those kind of things up. But it's you know, and really good systemic team coaches. That's pretty much what all they're doing is holding a space for a team to put those things into it and and, yeah. you know, resolve them. Yes. Yes. And I think, um, you know, resolving them or walking away or often more even more difficult is finding a way that you can both grow and or as a team, you can grow with those differences and embracing those differences. I think in a way it's a bit like, you know, I think we've had a lot of conversation, particularly in the last couple of years Mm. around culture of businesses and everyone's Mm. like, well, you know, look at the culture, look at your values, look at their values. If you're not happy, then leave. I'm not sure that that's always the answer. I think taking personal responsibility for what Mm. you can change, what you need to do yourself within a workplace, within a home environment is absolutely critical. And I worry that at the moment we've slightly gone the other way. We've gone from, you know, in a workplace going, oh, we need to do whatever they say because it's a working environment to now going, well, you know, this is this doesn't meet my needs. This doesn't meet my values. It's really interesting. I do some work with um, London Business School. I was talking to their organizational behavior, the MBA track and organizational behavior last week. And the, the professor there called Dana Kearns, who's amazing on this. Yes. And she was talking about, they talk a lot about workplace culture. And she goes, a, a strong culture is one where values are um, widely understood and strongly held. Yeah. 
Um, and they can be completely different. You know, there's no good model for it. That they companies like Bridgewater, which is a famous case study, which is a hardcore company. I mean, I would not want to work there, but for some people, it's brilliant. And there's other very different places. And I think it's like being in a family. Everyone has their role to play in a family. Um, and I think the same with a workplace culture. If you hold, if you understand the values and you believe them, then you will also be part of making them come to life. So if there is a value of, um, uh, you know, supporting each other or talking to each other in a respectful manner, you also are part of building that by your own behavior and how you deal with other people. You're not just the recipient of other people's behavior. So I really see a culture as an active place where everyone plays a part. Of course, if something is if those values are not held by you, you know, if there's something there which is fundamentally not something which you can, um, doesn't align with the behaviours that naturally come to you, then there might be a place that's better. But I don't think anyone can be passive in a culture because you are you are part of it and you are interacting with others and they are having an experience of you. And that is affecting their kind of day, week and month. Yes. And I, uh, I think that expression passive in a culture is so right mm. that so often the behaviours that particularly leaders have to make uh, to change and evolve that culture or to make it come to life for everyone else um, are so important. And so often we mm. don't really see or want to understand the impact of our behaviour. And oh, how that's the biggie, that, isn't it? I mean, that's the biggie. It, it is literally. I mean, um, understanding not not just self-awareness, I am like this, but how other people experience you, uh, you know, because you can be very well-meaning, but actually if other people experience you consistently as something else, then you're having an impact on them, which might actually make you really sad. You know, you might think I've yeah. coached people where they go, gosh, I'm, I'm te- I feel awful that people, you know, feel in- intimidated by me or think I'm being rude or whatever it might be. I really want to support them. So that is the first stage of self-awareness. The second stage is being aware how other people experience you. And for leaders, that is the job, right? Because you have every leader cast a shadow and you can either let it be an unintended one. It is just where it falls, or you can be really intentional about what that is. You can seek to understand how others experience you and be intentional about your influence on them, which gives you influence, the intended influence that you want. And that is the job of the leader. Um, and there's so I love to do that work with people because mm-hmm. often it's just about bringing into alignment how the the deep impact they want to have on the business and how they are actually showing up and just often there's a bit of a a disconnect and it's so wonderful when they when it falls into place and it's so wonderful for the people around them and you know there's a big ripple effect out on the whole business yeah yes I know it's it's so fascinating isn't it that you know it's so easy to say what's the impact that you have when you walk into the room and is it is it greater uh, than when you leave and you know the, the why we don't always see as leaders you know how people respond when you're not in the room because you're not there to see it and they're either like relieved you've gone or you cause complete chaos when you've been in there so everyone yeah. running around and you know we uh, Tom Bird uh, and, I, and I only tell the story because he's talked about it very openly he was at Oracle and we did some work with the team mm. And we looked at all their seven needs and it was brilliant. And then, you know, we talked about their culture and, and their work ethic and they mm. worked amazingly hard, not because they were scared or not because they had so much to do, they couldn't get through it all, but partly because they really liked and respected Tom as a leader and because mm. Tom worked so hard. So he would be working till two o'clock in the morning because he didn't want to let his team down. <clears throat> they were then working because they didn't want to let him down. And he said, we had this moment of aha where everyone, where one of the you know, brave direct reports quite new, she said, Tom, I think if you stop working till two o'clock in the morning, we'd stop working. Yeah. And he went, I don't want you. I bet he was heartbroken. He was heartbroken. Absolutely. He just went, I think I'm trying to keep my team going and lead them and help them. And they all did the same thing. And then they all stopped doing it. And it was so much better because, you know, no one should be working at two o'clock in the morning on a regular basis. But also because they got a different sense of respect. 
and could really reflect on what mattered to them as a team and how they showed up. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, I would advise every leader to spend some time thinking about that either on their own or or with a coach and also getting feedback on it. Um, And I think we're not always aware of it because as we go up through the ranks, you know, when you're, when you're more junior you have less of an impact and also you're really focused on the doing of the work you know the impact that you have is I've done this presentation etc whatever you've fulfilled your tasks now as you get more senior you don't realize that people look to you more and they they feed off your the energy that you bring um and you know I know for and you do have to spend more time consciously on it and some people think oh it's a waste of time it's sort of shouldn't have to think about it I mean if you want to influence and lead you do so I'm quite an open book and I sort of my face people can read it and so I would often have to spend time just taking like a second to whatever had whatever I'd come from just taking a minute to kind of breathe. So when I went into the room for my next meeting, I wasn't carrying whatever that energy was. It was just like, hi, everyone. How are you doing? Because if I came in, right, come on, let's crack on, you know, because whatever, I something had left me feeling a bit fried or frazzled. It just sets the mood of everything. And it's not about <clears throat> me, Sarah. It's just about you're sitting in that role and people look to you um, and they will take their cue about whether or not people saw it in the pandemic they'll take your cue about whether or not they should be worried and fearful or or relaxed and calm yeah and I think getting honest feedback um I've told the story before but Paul Pomeroy who's now the chief executive at McDonald's in Europe um every year or every other year I don't really know it feels quite often to me um gets feedback not just in a like a normal environment of his direct reports and everyone around him but from the advisors that he works with. And I've been one of those for a number of years. Mm. And I can, you know, I can be really honest because I don't work directly for him. Yeah. Um, you know, I can say stuff without being fearful of losing my job. Um, you know, and of course it's anonymized, but he could work it out if he wanted to. Uh, but I really admire him from that because not only does he ask for it, he gets the feedback and then he responds. And yeah. then says, right, this is what I'm now doing. So you can, as an advisor to me, as somebody working with me, hold me accountable to these mm. new behaviors, this new way of working. And I've really seen him grow as a leader because of yeah. it. Yeah. I think the same with cultures as well. I think seeking feedback on the culture. And it's not about asking people, hey, what culture do you think we should have? But I'm doing some work at the minute for a, a company who they have a set of values. It's a 25 year old company that they want to try and understand because the world's changed and it's changing all the time. Um, whether or not those values are widely understood and um, to take people's feedback on whether they feel the culture is the experience culture is matching up to to what they intend or what course corrections can be made. And so I've done a massive all-staff survey and I've also sat down and done call groups, you know, hours and hours of call groups. And I think you need to listen. You need to actively listen and seek information at different levels. So, you know, as a CEO, I would say you need to talk to your direct reports. You also need to walk the floors. You need to have a a review mechanism. You probably need to have an all-company feedback mechanism. You don't just need one thing. Um, and someone the other day said to me, um, well, we've got loads of surveys and things and no one completes them. And I'm like, well, you need to ask why. So sort of what's the emotion telling you? The emotion of I can't be fucked to fill it in, excuse my French, is telling you something. Yes. Um, And it's probably telling you that they're not seeing anything being done about this. So it's not the fact that people don't feed back is not a reason to stop listening. You've got to ask why they're not feeding back. And you can't just rely on an MPS score or talking to your direct reports, you need to ask and ask and ask again at all different layers, because you only by doing that will you get a full picture of what your company culture is. You don't want to be like the queen where when you walk in the room, everything smells of fresh paint. Yes. Because by the time a, a challenge within that culture, by the time it hits the bottom line and you see it, the, it you've already got a problem you can't solve. Right. You need to know when it's a smoldering slight smell of smoke before it's an all-out forest fire well I agree and I think you know so much effort is it's always put into doing the research but not actually doing anything with it Mm. starting a program so you know starting the well-being and performance programs that you know we see it takes so long and then they never do anything 
Mm. So, you know, I, I think so often get 80% there, get 80% yeah. communication right and keep going because you'll pick yeah. it up, get yeah. the program out there and then it'll evolve. There's nothing worse than saying, right, we're going to listen to you. And then, oh, no, we didn't really listen. We'll listen again. And yeah. actually nothing ever changes. And I think, you know, as human beings, we understand that and get that. And so the response to always those sort of um, research uh, or, or MPS scores or, or anything that you do within mm. the business, either people embrace it and get terribly excited, which is brilliant, but then they need something to happen. Yeah, I, I would say it's, that's the... Because they've seen that they've got excited before yeah. and nothing ever changes. I would say it's the start of the process, not the end of the process. Um, it yeah. just starts to tell you what might need to happen. And I think change needs to happen at all levels. So I'd go, you, you know, one-on-one coaching, team coaching, but also, and we did this with values at TBWA, don't tell people how the values are going to come to life ask them, (laughs) ask them, this is a value. Do we understand what it means? Now you tell me how you would like this to show up in your own behavior, but in the behavior of those around you, someone in HR will have a much better idea of how that value should show up or guide a hiring process than the C-suite will. So things that are co-created at every level will stand a much better chance of A, shaping the business and B, sticking. So, you know, I'd always say, co-create, run co-creation workshops, you know, spend time looking at the culture web. So what are all the elements of the keep in stasis the way things are done around here? So, oh, we, you know, we say we want collaboration, but we reward yeah. monthly sales targets. Or, you know, we say we X, but we always thank in the all staff emails Y. And just you have to spend time to go, okay, what do we need to stop doing? And then what other cultural cues, artifacts, stories, processes, uh, recognition, remuneration can we build back in? And again, it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing process. It's never, it's not a one and done. No, uh, completely, completely. Um, so I guess during this journey from you know, particularly TB up mm. WA through the book and the work you're doing now, what have you reflected on? that perhaps is the most important thing for for you or you've seen with leaders to do to be able to um, rebuild, you you says here, going from setback to comeback in business and beyond. Um, At the beginning of our conversation, Mm. we talked about some of the sort of the four key themes. Is there a single Mm. thing that you would go, look, this is the one thing? I think there's probably two things. I think in general within businesses, we don't pay enough time to the human you know the organic matter that's in our business um and just engaging with how fast or slow people change so really and and we don't do it right because it's it's time consuming and you can't just put it in a gantt plan um there's a reason why management consultants don't really get into the human aspect of change because they can't just scale it and roll it out yep. but it will be the defining element of whether or not something changes and whether or not your business will be successful. So just attend to the people and and spend time with them. Um, And then the the other element is this, what I call the sort of messy middle, the transformation period, is for leaders to acknowledge and understand that you can't just go from, right, this happened and now we're back on our feet, or there's been a change and this is the way things are going to be. There is naturally in human beings a period in, in the middle, which is the transformation period where you've got to unlearn things, you've got to relearn things, you've got to set things aside, you've got to get over loss, and then you've got to pick up other things. And too often businesses just think they can go straight from one to the other. And I know... Um, yeah, I know businesses want everything to be fast, but if you rush people through it, if you don't acknowledge loss or you don't give people time, there's a brilliant um, uh, professor called, uh, or psychoanalyst called William Bridges, and he says, it's not the change that kills you, it's the transition. And so if lead, for leaders just to acknowledge there is a gap, there is a space and attend to that and think about what will happen within that and guiding people through it. And also for ourselves, you know, I left my job as a CEO um, and, you know, immediately, what are you going to do? What are you? And I was like, I've got to have a proposition. I've got to tell people. And the more, you know, you more pay attention to my own work and the work I do with my own coach is to go, no, that not only is there a necessary transition period, but actually that's the most fruitful, fertile bit. 
because that's where new ideas emerge. And actually, if, you know, eventually when I go, this is the, the this is exactly the type of business I have. These are the only types of projects I take on. It would be much better and much more evolved than if I'd figured it out the day I left TVWA. So actually, I think you get the more you practice in that space and acknowledge that space, the more you start to get excited about it and the more you're able to operate within it. So yeah. attend to the people, attend to the people and acknowledge that you do need that space for transition to happen and try and help guide people through it and make the space for it in the business. Yeah, that messy middle bit, I mm. think I would say so many businesses are in that moment of the mo- now, yeah, aren't they? they Don't are. you think? I think it's a great way to sum up where we see that sense of all the things we've talked about today, the sense yeah. of uncertainty that needs to be embraced and, and, and people have different levels of that. Yeah, and um, that's exactly what we focus on in the book. It is that rebuilding phase between a setback and a comeback. And there's loads of really, really practical tools in there. So there's a great case studies, some really inspirational people that we spoke to. And there's, I think, 15 tools that you can use yourself or you can start to use with with your teams. Brilliant. Well, we're going to put a link to the book. Um, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been fascinating. And I feel a little bit like, you know, some of those things that bubble up inside me that I think about. I talk to my psychologists that we work with all the time. Uh, it's great to hear your business perspective on it as well, because I think the more we understand and learn and share from each other, because mm. as you say, this is this is such a new conversation for many businesses and many leaders to have. It is. It um, is. There isn't a right or wrong. And there's not enough experience per se within organizations to go oh you know we've all tried that before and 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 it's really worked um because so much of it is is very new yeah it is and that's the been the pleasure of starting to do this type of work with organizations is so many strides great strides can be made just by starting to become aware of of these things yeah, brilliant. Well, thank you for sharing your resets with me today. It's Lovely to talk to you and I will see you again soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed Reset the podcast, I'd love it if you would forward it to your work colleagues, friends and family. Reset the podcast is a Let's Reset and Advertising Week global production. Executive producer is Richard Larson, with me, Suki Thompson. Thanks to our sponsor, Liars Non-Alcoholic Spirits and voiceover artist, Talitha Penny. Music provided by Audio Network.